Please take your Bibles with me and turn to Jeremiah 34. Title of the sermon, Superficial Repentance. With, within many contexts of late, be it what we've been talking about Tuesday nights in Hebrews, throughout any number of other services, some in Sunday school as well, we have talked about the reality that faith presupposes works. I've said that any number of times. Faith presupposes works. And we go to the book of James, particularly James chapter 2, and we see this idea. We talk about it in Hebrews 11, that faith presupposes works, that we can know what we actually believe by what we do, right? There are, however, other forces than just faith that can compel obedience. Fear can compel obedience. Force itself to some degree. Physical force can compel obedience. But the problem with all of these forms of compulsion is that any righteousness that might be, might be compelled by such an emotion tends to end at the point that the threat is over. Any, any action that force compels tends to end at the moment that the force ends. Any action that fear compels tends to stop when the fear goes away. The change, thus, is not actually in the heart. It's superficial. The activity is not actually compelled by choice. It's compelled by some external force. It's superficial. And today we're going to look at a superficial form of repentance from Jeremiah 34, and we're going to learn some lessons from it. We've been focusing over the last several weeks on God's promises of a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah 33. This has dominated our thoughts and our study as we saw God promise that things would one day be very different for the nation than the way they are today. But let us not forget the context within which these promises were being made as far as the physical context that Jeremiah is in. The city at this point is in the days of Zedekiah, the final king of Judah's history. He reigned for the last 11 years before Judah was taken into captivity by Babylon, uh, the final captivity uh, coming in 586 B.C. And as we see this right now, uh, the, the city is surrounded. It is under siege by Babylon. And it is under siege, and Jeremiah is shut up in the court of the prison, right? He's been imprisoned. The city is surrounded. Things are looking very bleak, and this bleakness descends into even deeper depths as we continue in our context tonight. You're there in Jeremiah chapter 34. Look at verse 1 with me. The Bible says, The word which came unto Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, and all the kingdoms of the earth of his dominion, and all the people fought against Jerusalem and against all the cities thereof, saying, and we'll read that in just a moment. We're introduced here to our context, uh, a word which is coming to Jeremiah at the time when Nebuchadnezzar and his army and the way Jeremiah describes it here, all the kingdoms of the earth in his possession, Nebuchadnezzar is throwing all that he has, all of his resources upon this siege of Jerusalem and its surrounding cities. Things are at their most desperate point, so much so that the king is, it would seem, in perhaps desperation, perhaps contrary to much of his character, actually going to do something good. He's going to do something that the Lord is pleased with. Let's read what God has to say in verses 2 and 3. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, 
Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. And thou shalt not escape out of his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. And thine eyes shall behold the eyes of the king of Babylon, and he shall speak with thee mouth to mouth, and thou shalt go to Babylon. So we find here a renewal of the promise that God made through Jeremiah in chapter 32. When Jeremiah, if you recall, went and he purchased that parcel of land, right? Uh, he went, he, he called his, co- his cousin, came up and said, hey, will you buy this land for me? And even though there's no reason to invest in the land that's about to be besieged, Jeremiah did it at the behest of the Lord as a sign to show that, that God was going to restore the nation back to the land. And at that time, God said this very thing, that the city would fall to Babylon, that it would be burned with fire, that the king would not escape the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, but that instead he would surely be taken by Nebuchadnezzar, delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he would see the king's eyes face to face. He would speak to the king mouth to mouth, that they would would see each other personally, and then he would be taken to Babylon. So in this, we have a reiteration of a previous message, right? So this is a repeat. We've heard this before. But this time things get a little deeper. The difference being that with every step Babylon takes closer to overwhelming the city, the reality of Jeremiah's message, of course, is becoming more and more apparent. Jeremiah has been preaching for decades now, and there was a time where people were like, eh, just just crazy Jeremiah, right? And then things started coming to pass. And at this point, it's becoming uh, irrefutable that what Jeremiah has said that by, by, you know, of the word of the Lord is coming to pass. The people's capacity to ignore Jeremiah's words is becoming more and more difficult to sustain. So God has once again given this message of inevitable defeat, but all was not lost. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. So this is a message from the Lord to Zedekiah. Thus saith the Lord of thee, Thou shalt not die by the sword. But thou shalt die in peace, and with the burnings of thy fathers, the former kings which were before thee, so shall they burn odors for thee, and they will lament thee, saying, Ah, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, saith the Lord. Now we know that he's speaking to Zedekiah here, not just because he says Zedekiah, but because, as we know from our King James Bible, one of the tremendous interpretive uh, translational consistencies that the King James translators used is that they use thee and thou, you and your, right? And when we see you, your, and ye, we know that the pronoun undergirding that, the second person pronoun, is plural, speaking to, a, to, to multiple people. And when we see thee, thou, and thine, we know that the pronoun, the second person pronoun undergirding thee, thou, and thine is singular. And this is a tremendous help to us as we're reading the word of God so that we know whether one person is being spoken to or a group of people is being spoken to. And we've looked at the number of instances where in the middle of a verse, the pronoun has changed from you to thee and seen how it has gone from speaking to a group to one or speaking from one to a group. And this is an instance where we know he's talking to Zedekiah, not just because he says, oh, Zedekiah, but he is using the singular pronoun. He is speaking to the king himself here. And God makes it abundant. This is good news for Zedekiah, verses 4 and 5. He makes it abundantly clear that Zedekiah will not die by the sword during this siege. Much to the contrary, he says, Zedekiah, you are going to die in peace. And he says, with the burnings of thy fathers. Going all the way back to the early days of the Jewish kings, there would be a burning of incense as a means by which to mourn and honor the dead king of Judah. We see these things commonly rehearsed throughout the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 16, 14, we read this. 
And they buried him in his own sepulchers, which he had made for himself in the city of David, and laid him in the bed which was filled with sweet odors and diverse kinds of spices prepared by the apothecaries, art, and they made a very great burning for him. So in here, here in 2 Chronicles 16, 14, we see the death of Asa, a good king, a very good king in Israel. I mean, Judah, excuse me. Uh, and he was the great-grandson of Solomon. He was indeed such a good king and uh, blessed the people. And the people loved him so much that the Bible says his burning was very great. Now, notice he was buried. This tells us plainly that they're not burning his body, right? This is not a burning of the king's body. He was buried in his sepulcher. They adorned him with odors and diverse kinds of spices, and then they had a great burning of those spices for him. And that is the context here. That's what we see. They were burning sweet odors. They were burning this in honor of him being a great king and one that they desired to honor, now, this was not done for every king, however. Indeed, those kings who were evil, who the people identified as having drawn them away from the Lord and not profited the land, did not get that honor. They were denied that honor. We see this happen to Jeho Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram. He was a very wicked king. He reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And the Bible says this at the end of his life in 2 Chronicles 21, verse 19. Second half of 19 and verse 20. And his people made no burning for him, like the burning of his fathers. Thirty and two years old was he when he began to reign. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years and departed without being desired. When he departed, no one cared. They said, good. Howbeit they buried him in the city of David, but not in the sepulcher of the kings. They didn't bury him with the kings, and they did not have a burning for him, because they did not feel him worthy of such an honor. That would have been a great shame to him and to his family. But God said that it would not be so for Zedekiah, that he would be recognized as a legitimate king, that he would receive the send-off that was common to honor the seed of David that sat upon the throne. And in many ways, this would have been a great relief to Zedekiah and probably was to Zedekiah one of the greatest physical blessings he could have heard from the Lord. That he... Remember, he's one of three brothers, of uh, sons of Josiah, that, that reigned in those last 20 years. He was the last one of those to reign. And he was put in there, he was put in place in that position by Nebuchadnezzar himself. There was a lot of ups and downs. He was not, not, not exactly a great king. And yet, he would be recognized as a king, as a legitimate king. And that would be important to him. And God says, you are going to get that. Why is the question. What, what, what is it that, that Zedekiah did here that was going to proffer this blessing from the Lord? We continue reading in verses 6 and 7. Then Jeremiah the prophet spake all these words unto Zedekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem, when the king of Babylon's armies fought against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and against Azekah. For these defense cities remained of the cities of Judah. So we have in these verses a finalization of the context of Jeremiah's message, an assurance that the king heard these words specifically, and that is in fact very important for us to understand because we find that God's message, uh, which while not at all lessened by the reality of the captivity, nonetheless reflects some degree of kindness towards Zedekiah. Yes, 
They're still going to be taken into captivity. Yes, Zedekiah is still going to be captured. But there is a measure of kindness here that he would live out his days in peace and that he would be honored as a legitimate king in Judah. And these promises were not there for no reason. These promises were given to Zedekiah in response to an act of obedience on his part. See, God blesses obedience. Even among the wicked, even among those such as Zedekiah who made a lot of very poor choices, he makes a choice that we see recounted in Jeremiah 34 and God says, for that there will be a measure of of blessing bestowed upon you. The nature of this act of obedience is described beginning in verse 8. The Bible says in verses 8 and 9, this is the word that came unto Jeremiah from the Lord after that King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people which were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty unto them, that every man should let his manservant and every man his maidservant, being in Hebrew or in Hebrew-esque, Go free, that none should serve himself of them, to wit, of a Jew his brother. So we find that, uh, that the word that came to Zedekiah, uh, the word which we just read, came after Zedekiah had made a covenant with the people of Jerusalem, giving them liberty, specifically proclaiming that every man should free his manservants and maidservants who were Hebrew uh, uh, who were Hebrews, who, were, who were, were Jewish. We might describe this perhaps, we don't know all the ins and outs of why exactly he did this, but it's quite possible that Zedekiah did this in, in some sort of last hour intervention, uh, that Zedekiah makes a covenant with all the people, most certainly, and we'll see this in a little bit, a covenant before the Lord, accompanied by the re- requisite sacrifices and solemnity that would come from making a covenant uh, between the people and the Lord. And we'll talk about why we would believe that to be the case a little bit later in our text. And they made a covenant to obey the word of the Lord in a manner that had not been done at, for, for generations, if ever. To allow those of Jewish descent, those who were Hebrews and Hebrewesses, that had at some point sold themselves into indentured servitude, perhaps to pay debts, perhaps because of poverty, to be set free. Now, we'll consider deeper what's going on here as the text continues, but the call to do this is rooted in the Old Testament law and the command that on the seventh year, that every seventh year in Israel would be a sabbatical year. That in the, in the, just as in the first six days of the week, They would do all of their work and they would labor and on the seventh day they'd rest. God also instituted a seventh year rest that in the first six years they would plant and that they would grow and that they would harvest and they would do these things. But in the seventh year, God would multiply them bountifully on the sixth year, double, sufficient so that they could let the animals and the people and the land rest on the seventh year and be free from that labor. Simultaneously, at this same time, it was also expected that those who uh, um, that that those who had a indebtedness of some sort would be released and their land would be restored to them. This was, if we want to call it this, a societal safety net among an, a homogenous people group that a man could be helped through his labor and at the end of his time would be graciously restored to his divine inheritance. Now, all of the reasons for this declaration of this law are not explained. All of the reasons for the declaration of this covenant that that was given are not explained. It's possible that the king did 
was simply doing here some sort of every man for himself, a I'm releasing all of the servants because we're all about to get captured anyway, so go do your thing. It's possible that the king intended to free the servants so that then he could compel them to join the military and be a part of his fighting. But I don't believe either of those to be primary. And the reason why I don't believe either of those to be the primary reason why Zedekiah proclaimed this, this covenant and thus this release is because God is about to bless him for it. I mentioned already that it seems as though this might be a last hour intervention. That perhaps Zedekiah, in a, in a, in a last ditch attempt to incur the favor of God, aligns the people of Israel with God's expectation in this regard seeking thus to restore some measure of obedience of the people before the Lord and maybe incur the Lord's favor. And I believe on Zedekiah's part, this appears to have been somewhat genuine. And we would uh, see the, the genuineness of this in this very fact that God gives him a blessing. God specifically links the positive prophecy made concerning Zedekiah going and dying in peace in Babylon and having a burning for him with this covenant that he makes here in verse 8. Seeming to reveal that Zedekiah was in fact being blessed by God for his willingness to align in this regard with the law of God. But just because the king's decree so showed some semblance of heartfelt repentance, this by no means implies that the people had aligned their heart in like manner. Verse 10. Now when all the princes and all the people which had entered into the covenant, so notice the people and the princes entered into this with the king, heard that everyone should let his manservant and everyone his maidservant go free, that none should serve themselves of them any more, then they obeyed and let them go. Okay, so, so they make this covenant. They did not demand that if you had um, slaves of other nations that you release them, only if they were Jews. And so that's the idea here, that's what's happening here, that's the release that's happening here. And God, uh, the king calls for the people to enter into this covenant. The people and the princes enter into this covenant. They, they obey and they let them go. And that's great. And indeed, this would reflect a heart of repentance. And so, according to God's nature, must bring about some measure of mercy because with repentance always comes mercy. But their repentance was superficial. Look at verse 11. But afterward they turned and caused the servants and the handmaids whom they had let go free to return and brought them into subjection for servants and for handmaids. Now, we don't know all the details of this. We know that the king announced this covenant, that the people aligned with this covenant. It says that they did free them and then somehow resubjected them. We don't know how that worked. Was it that they announced this freedom and the people said, yes, we free them, and then walked away and then refused to follow through, kind of like Ananias and Sapphira selling all of their goods in the New Testament and then withholding a portion and saying that they, they gave everything? Was it more that they announced this freedom in the midst of a particularly perilous moment? Maybe at that time uh, the, the, there, were, there were ramparts and there was banging at the gates and, and the people were terrified because Babylon was there. Maybe they just peeked over the walls and they saw the vast array of armies and so they ran to the temple and, and, and made this covenant and in that moment, 
moment of, of the siege and of fear, they said, well, I have nothing to lose anyway, so I might as well give them up. And then maybe at that point, things subsided a little bit and things got back to normal. And kind of like Pharaoh in Egypt, when in the heat of the plague, right, he said, your people can go and you can worship. But then after the plague was removed, then he kind of changed his mind and said, no, I'm going to hard my heart and you're not going to be able to, to go. Maybe it was something like that, where the people in a moment of fear uh, repented or, 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 or made the, these... these um, these overtures of repentance, and then once that fear subsided, maybe then they just kind of said, okay, uh, never mind. <laughs> we don't quite know how this worked. But what we do know is that they are said to have released them. They made the covenant, they released their servants, and then they resubjected them quite quickly. Now, as I just mentioned, I don't think this was the king's intent. And I say that because of that, this, this blessing. I think the king was genuine here. And his people were not. But the people, it's very clear, were not genuine. And in light of their superficial repentance, in light of this superficial action in relation to a covenant that they bound themselves to with the Lord, God says this beginning in verse 12. Therefore the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondmen, saying, at the end of seven years, let ye go every man his brother and Hebrew, which hath been sold unto thee. And when he had served thee six years, thou shalt let him go from thee. But your fathers hearken not unto me and incline their ear. So we have this covenant that God makes with them. God begins by rehearsing the basis for the action which they had intended to do in releasing the manservants and the maidservants. God recalls how he had made a covenant, the law of Moses with the nation. And as a part of this covenant, at the end of the at seven years, every Hebrew who had sold himself into servitude, whether to pay off debts or whether to support his family, would be released. Now, this was mentioned already. Let's take a look at where it is. Exodus chapter 21. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 2 through 4, the Bible says this. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve. And in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, he shall, uh, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. So he was to leave with the things that were his. But not only with the things that were his, we get an extra insight into what is expected of the masters in Deuteronomy 15. In Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 15, the Bible says this, And if thy brother, an Hebrew man or an Hebrew woman, be sold unto thee and serve thee six years, then in the seventh year thou shalt let him go free from thee. And when thou sendest him out free from thee, thou shalt not let him go away empty. Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock and out of thy floor and out of thy winepress of that wherewith the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him, and thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee, therefore I command thee these, this thing today. As a sign of familial affection and obedience to God, the master was not simply charged with allowing this man and his family to leave. So it's not just, man, you can leave, but your family has to stay. No, no, no. You have to let his family go with him. You give him a wife, she goes with him. But on top of that, God says... 
you need to furnish him. You let him go and you, you give of, his, of, of your wealth liberally to him as he goes his way from your own flocks, from your own fields, from your own wine presses. And this is out of a love for God, faith in God, acknowledging that all that they had was God's anyway, so don't be stingy. Knowing that all that a man gives away, God is able to restore, and understanding on the basis of this fact that you were bondmen in Egypt. And remember what happened when they were in Egypt? Remember what God did for them as they left? God said, I will put the fear of God and the favor of, of God upon the people of Egypt and they will give liberally to you. And so they left having pillaged Egypt because the people of Egypt just gave them all their goods. God says, if I've done that for you, don't withhold from your brother when he's, when he's going out from you. That's what God is talking about when he says these things in Jeremiah 34. When he talks about the covenant that he made with their fathers, it's, these, it's these elements that, that, that were the, the part of the covenant. And God mentions specifically that the people throughout their history had failed in this element of the covenant. Again, this would not surprise us. We speak of the days of Josiah. You can read about this in 2 Chronicles uh, 33 through 35, when the temple had been in di- disrepair for years. Josiah ordered his priests to clean up the temple to repair the house of God. And there's a record of them finding this book called the Law of Moses that none of them had ever read before. And the priests read it. The priests and the scribe read it. And they say, wow, this is important stuff. And they read it to Josiah. And he'd never heard these things before. And he said, if this is what God expects of us, we're in trouble. God must be very angry with us. And it was validated. God is angry with you. And so they keep a Passover. And the Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles 35, 18, that there was no Passover like it kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. Now, that doesn't mean there was no Passover at all. You can see a few other um, Passovers, but they, were tend- they tended to be quite localized and they tended to be quite restrained. But the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 35, 18, there had been no Passover like this one since the days of Samuel. That's a long, long time. Tremendous gaps in Israel's obedience throughout their history. The, 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 the king at that time had grown up not even knowing that the law existed. And more than that, the priests, when they found the scroll, had never read the law before themselves. Everything rested only upon tradition and was compelled only by ritual, and that even barely. So God admits what we find throughout Israel's history, that Israel had often disregarded the law of Moses almost wholesale from significant portions of their history. Verse 15, he says, And ye were now turned and had done right in my sight in proclaiming liberty every man to his neighbor. And ye had made a covenant before me in the house, which is called by my name. So they had disregarded God for so long. And God says, you finally got it. You finally, you finally did something that you haven't done in so long. You finally aligned yourself with me in a way that you had not aligned in so long. They had finally turned That's the concept of repentance, right? It's a turning to something from something. They had finally turned. They had finally done something right in God's sight. They had finally aligned with this element of the law of God. They had finally liberated their neighbors, their brothers, their fellow Hebrews. They had made a covenant with God to this effect before the Lord in the temple. But it wasn't genuine. It was, in fact, blasphemy in the eyes of God. Look at verse 16. But ye turned and polluted my name and caused every man his servant and every man his handmaid 
whom he had set at liberty at their pleasure to return and brought them into subjection to be unto you for servants and for handmaids. God calls their turn a false turn. And instead of honoring his name, he says, you have polluted my name. Superficial repentance. Taking the name of the Lord in vain. Blasphemy. Calling upon the Lord in his house. Covenanting with him, but only superficially, all the while refusing to align with the thing that they had promised to do. They had set these men and women at liberty and then they resubjected them quickly. And as if the mere act without any of the results would somehow appease God. As if the covenant itself without actually bringing about the results of that covenant would somehow be enough. As if God could be manipulated into seeing their backhanded covenant as something of true value. That is very much so blaspheming God. Polluting His name. God did not look well upon it. Verse 17. Therefore thus saith the Lord, ye have not hearkened unto me in proclaiming liberty every one to his brother and every man to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim a liberty for you, saith the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, to the famine, and I will make you to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. So God declares that he will deal with them according to the way that they have just dealt with him. You've proclaimed a liberty to your brethren, I'll proclaim a liberty for you. You are now free to go to the sword and die. You are now free to die by pestilence. You are now free to die by famine. That is now your liberty. He says you are now free to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth into captivity. God is obviously getting a little, being a little snarky here, a little sarcastic. God is not beyond uh, a little tongue-in-cheek. But the point that God is making is that their actions are proving the point. They can't say that it was their father's fault that they blasphemed the name of God. Remember back several chapters before they said, they, they used that proverb, we talked about it in Ezekiel as well, that uh, our fathers ate sour grapes and our teeth are set on edge. The idea that it's our father's sins for which we're being punished, that it's our father's fault that, that this is, has been brought upon us. It's not our fault, it's our father's fault. Well, here's the thing. Who just made a covenant with God and breached it? It wasn't your father's. Your fathers did that too, but this one's yours. This one's on your head. You can't say anything about this one because this one's the one you just made with me. And then you turn from it, just as your fathers have done. This is exactly the sort of evil for which the nation is going into captivity, and they have done it too. They've proven once again the disregard that they have for the Lord and the callousness of their own hearts to Him. Verses 18 through 20. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant, which they made, had made before me when they cut the calf in twain and passed between the parts thereof, the princes of Judah and the priests, uh, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs and the priests and all the people of the land, which passed between the parts of the calf, I will even give them into the hand of their enemies." And into the hand of them that seek their life and their dead bodies shall be for meat unto the fowls of heaven and unto the beasts of the earth. Now, this is a big deal. There are two possible contexts that are being spoken of here, but either one is talking about a particular covenant. God alludes here to a covenantal practice which we have not seen in the Bible since Genesis 15. And there in Genesis 15, in the days of Abraham, 
Within this practice, animals were, we talked about this not too long ago, right? Animals were cut in half and they were placed on either side of a valley or a trench of sorts. Now, uh, there would also be a couple of birds as a part of this. They would not be cut in half. They'd be left whole. And they, the other animals would be cut in half, and then they would be left on either side of this hill, and the blood would drain into the center, into this valley, or into this trench. And once the blood had, had entered into this trench, the two parties that were making the covenant would each give their terms for the covenant, and then they would walk through that blood as a way of binding themselves or ratifying the covenant and binding themselves to the consequences of that covenant, both positively and then if they breached that covenant, binding themselves to it. So to offend the terms of the covenant would come with the penalty of, uh, of, of death, perhaps, if that was it, or would come with the penalties that the covenant had ratified. Now, in Abraham's day, remember, we talked about this last week as it related to covenants um, because we were talking about conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. And in Abraham's day, God put Abraham to sleep, gave him all the terms of the covenant, and then the, 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 the light of God, the glory of God, walked through that covenant, on, uh, that, that blood on his own, and Abraham never walked through it, understanding from that that God was making a one-way covenant. He was binding himself to Abraham, but binding Abraham to nothing. Right? That this was God binding himself to Abraham. That is not what God is talking about here. He tells them, he, as he describes this, God seems to say here that when the people covenanted before the Lord to release their servants, they did so in this form. They did so through this blood covenant. There were many different types of covenants, many different ways to ratify them. But as far as Hebrew culture was concerned, this was the big one. This was the most important. This was the, the most binding. This was the most official. There doesn't seem to be any other reasonable explanation here as God describes to them the idea that they passed between the parts of the calf. Then that they, in their covenant, that they would release these slaves actually performed this very ceremony. That would mean that in the temple, before the Lord, as a means of reaching out to God and appealing to His mercy, they took this oath. And this was a big-time oath. <laughs> and then they broke it. And then they turned right from it. This is the difference, really. I mean, as we talk about this, this is the difference between going up to your neighbor and saying you'll do something for him and him saying, okay, that's great, and then you shaking hands, and then you just never get around to it, right? Okay, you told him he'd do it. You shook hands, but... You know, that, that's it. That's the difference between that and actually signing a legal contract, money changing hands, and then you not doing the work, right? They bound themselves to this oath and then they walked away from it. So God says, when, when, he, when he told them that he would give them the liberty to be destroyed, that was to the whole nation, right? That was to the whole nation of Judah. But he says, to the ones that actually walked through that blood, to the ones that actually bound themselves to this oath personally. He has a particular message for them. And he says to those princes of Judah and to Jerusalem that they will be delivered into the hands of those who want them dead and they will be killed. They made a blood oath. They broke the blood oath. The blood will be required. So he says, you will be killed. You will not have the opportunity to be scattered, to go into captivity you will be delivered into the hands of those that want your, dead, 
you, you dead and, and, and you'll, you'll, you'll be dead. The chapter finishes with God turning his eyes back to Zedekiah, chapter, uh, verses 21 and 22. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his princes will I give into the hands of their enemies and into the hand of them that seek their life and into the hand of the king of Babylon's armies, which are gone up from you. Behold, I will command, saith the Lord, and cause them to return to the city and they shall fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. And I will make the cities of Judah and des- uh, a desolation without an inhabitant. Right here we see perhaps the, the, just the faintest glimmer of a little bit more of what might have happened. God says here in verse 22, I will command and cause them to return to this city. So my thought on this is most likely what happened is in, in a time of, a, uh, like I described, in a time of heavy siege, they made this oath and then Babylon backed off. Maybe it was because they had other things to do, geopolitical need that, that called some of the army away, whatever it was. Babylon backed off, and so they backed off of their covenant. And so this is where God says, I will command and cause them to return to the city, right? So they're, they're going to come back your way, and they're going to finish the job and fight against it. So that's what we see here. This is, this is the, the exposition of this. Now let's apply. I'd like to cover four points in our application this evening in regard to superficial repentance. Point number one, superficial repentance is different from repetitive failure. Superficial repentance is different from repetitive failure. I begin by making a clear distinction, a difference between superficial repentance, which we'll be speaking about in our other three points of application, and the idea of repetitive failure. Repetitive failure is an outworking of human frailty. The reality that no matter how genuine, no matter how much I desire to be holy, I fall short of perfection. And so I am compelled to repent of my sin, to confess my sin before the Lord, to live in a manner that pleases God. The just man falleth seven times, but rises again. This is a genuine heart of repentance, a desire to do what's right, a genuine act of confession, leading invariably to forgiveness by the Lord, renewal of relationship, only again to falter, only again to fail, and then again to have to go before the throne of grace and to seek for mercy. Jesus does not despise the weakness of our flesh. Jesus does not despise the weakness of our flesh. And he has made every provision for our sin nature through his finished work on the cross and the system of confession and forgiveness that God has put in place. So our Lord teaches in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Jesus teaches this as a reflection of God's own character on the matter. So that if even seven times, of course, seven being the number of perfection, the number of completion, right? There's an idea here revealing that any number of times is in play. If even seven times a day a brother trespass against thee, but he does in fact turn and repent, implying a genuine turning from the action and acknowledgement of fault, thou shalt forgive him. And so we naturally read then in 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The reason why Jesus Christ has, it, has called upon us to forgive our brethren in such a manner is because this is how Christ forgives us. No caveat, no asterisk, no fine print. If we confess our sin, if we acknowledge it before the Lord, call it what it is, 
vile, wicked, and wrong, acknowledge God's righteousness and our unrighteousness, God is both faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to do it every time as God's justice is already fulfilled in Christ. This is not what I speak of this evening when I speak of superficial repentance. This is not what we find here in the book of Jeremiah among the people. In Jeremiah, the people engaged in an act of overt turning from a practice of rebelling. They engaged in that overtly. They engaged in it, in it publicly while in their hearts lacked any intention or determination to follow through with what they had vowed. Whether they intended to follow through and then decided they didn't want to at the end or, or, or when the immediate danger had passed or whether they, they only gave lip service, either way, it was superficial. It had no foundation. It did not rest in an actual determination of their heart only in maybe fear, maybe manipulation, but it wasn't, it wasn't genuine. It was an attempt to get something out of God without actually meeting heart conditions. And as you would seek to apply these principles to your own life, only you, in your various contexts and circumstances, only you can determine whether or not a set of actions is repetitive failure following genuine repentance or whether it's superficial repentance. I can't define that for you this evening. I can't define for you whether or not you're going to the Lord and you're repenting and you're making it right and you're, you're, you're confessing your sins and he's cleansing you from all unrighteousness and you genuinely in your heart say, Lord, I, I, I'm serving you, I'm ready, I want to do this and then you fail again because of the weakness of your flesh. That, that happens. I can't say whether or not any circumstance that might bubble up in your heart as we're talking through these things is that or whether it's you attempting to incur something, some sort of favor with God by superficially repenting of something of which you are not truly repentant. But do know that there is a difference. And when an action does fall into the category of superficial repentance, that's where these next three points come in. That's what we need to talk about. Point number two, superficial repentance can mimic true repentance, but will never produce the spiritual fruit of true repentance. In Zedekiah's day, the princes and the people entered into this covenant. By doing so, they paid this lip service to the reality that they had sinned. They paid lip service to the reality that they were being unjust toward these servants and breaching the law of Moses. And, and in entering into the covenant, they did right. And we see the very, that in the very fact that Zedekiah was blessed in part for his role in this. But none of that matters because their hearts were not actually in it. They didn't follow through. And the point is this. You can't fool God. You cannot fool God. The promises of God rooted in repentance are a restoration of fellowship and the abiding joy that comes from said fellowship. This is what repentance does. Conviction is that thing in our lives that draws us unto repentance. And when we find repentance, it restores us to relationship and it brings a measure of joy. Because we are right with God. The song we sing, nothing between my soul and the Savior. That's a wonderful thought. If you've had children, of course, you understand this. That idea that your child has offended and there's something between you and your child. And then when that gets right, when that's made right, there's this restoration. And it's a wonderful thing. It can happen with your spouse as well, right? That there's a breach of something between you and your spouse and then you get right and there's a reconciliation and it's wonderful. 
That's what repentance brings to the table. Now, I can mimic those results. The results of true repentance physically, materially. I can live a lie and mimic those results to some degree. But saying one thing before the eyes of men and doing something different once I'm beyond the sight of their reach, by doing that, I can mimic the results of true repentance. The idea being that I can go up to someone and I can seek to reconcile with them and I can have the externalities of that done while in my heart I'm, I'm not at all restored to them. In my heart, I still intend to offend them again. I can do that with other men. My child can come up to me and say the right words to pacify some consequence while simultaneously not in the least bit aligning their heart with me. And they can produce those things externally and thus perhaps get themselves out of the the fire a little bit. But we can't do that with God. It does not do, it does not work with one who knows your heart to produce superficial repentance, to pretend, to pacify. Well, just say what dad wants to say so that we can go do what we want to do. Okay, you can do that with dad. You know, dad wants to hear something, you tell him what he wants to hear, and you can go play. That, that can happen with dad. Dad can be fooled. Mom can be fooled. God can't be fooled. Superficial repentance can mimic true repentance, but it cannot produce the spiritual fruit of true repentance. If I want the benefits of life lived under grace, then I have to be genuine. I have to be given to the Lord. I cannot manipulate, the, uh, manipulate God into blessing me. God, God doesn't work that way. There can be no loopholes before the eyes of God who knows the very thoughts and intents of my heart. This is what John the Baptist told the Pharisees on the day when he was baptizing in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. The Bible says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits. Meet to repentance. Look, you can't just dunk yourself in water and say, I'm good with God. You either bring forth the fruit of repentance or it's it's valueless because you can't fool God. God is not convinced that you're something you're not just because you're wet. It doesn't work that way. God is not going to be convinced that you're something you're not just because you put a check in the box. God is not going to be convinced you're something you're not just because you put your backside in the seat. It doesn't work with God. It might work with Pastor Wickler. It might work with mom or dad. It might work with church member, but it can't work with God. A superficial repentance has some power to affect. It can get an authority off your back because they've heard the words they want to hear. It can fool an authority into thinking you're aligned with them when, they are, when you are not. It can impress people who see outward actions but naturally cannot know your heart. But if you want the praise and the blessing of repentance that is brought by God, if you want the praise of God, if you want the blessing of God, well, David said it best. David says a lot of things well. Psalm 51, 16, and 17. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. 
What God does not despise is when my spirit is aligned with him. A broken spirit, a contrite, a broken and a contrite heart, genuineness. Now, that doesn't mean the Old Testament worshiper would not bring a sacrifice. But if he brought it in superficial repentance, it means it would mean nothing. It would mean nothing. And we see that. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Isaiah chapter 1 and uh, um, uh, Hosea 6 and Micah 6 and, and, and all of those same, these the, the same testimonies of the same idea. I quoted one of them this morning, Micah 6, 6 through 8. Only the only element that the external offering would do back in that Old Testament economy would be blessed as it aligned with the internal repentance, carrying the weight of spiritual restoration. That's what David acknowledges here as he confesses his sin with Bathsheba and his murdering of Uriah the Hittite in Psalm 51. So superficial repentance is different from repetitive failure. Superficial repentance, you can mimic true repentance with superficial repentance, particularly on the external level, but it will never produce the spiritual fruit of true repentance before God. Don't fool yourself and don't think you can fool God. Point number three. Superficial repentance is a form of blasphemy. When the nation turned back and again subjected their servants, having just entered into this covenant with God to the contrary, God tells them that in doing so, they polluted God's name. We spoke on Tuesday night a while back on the doctrinal reality that to take God's name in vain in its purest essence was not simply about using God's name in a flippant way, about using God's name as some sort of swear word or expletive, although those things certainly have an element of uh, flippancy and thus, thus um, blasphemy to it, but that the, that the deeper essence of not taking the Lord's name in vain was claiming to represent the character of God falsely. To claim to be a believer but to walk contrary to sound doctrine is to assume God's name in vanity or emptiness. It's to take God's name in vain. Superficial repentance is to take the very essence of God's promises, the very essence of God's character, that God restores the, the repentant, that God has mercy upon the repentance, and it is to scorn it. It is to disrespect the very essence of God's character and, and his design. If one of my children were to do wrong and I were to speak to them, ask them to apologize, and they went up to their siblings and gave the least heartfelt, most sarcastic apology possible, well, they obeyed me in the letter of my request, right? But not only did they disobey the spirit of my request because it wasn't heartfelt and genuine, but in fact, they went out of their way to take what I asked them to do and to twist it and to scorn it and to disrespect not just their sibling who they wronged, but to disrespect me in my request of them. It actually reflects back upon me disrespect, not just that they didn't, okay, they, they don't align their heart, that, that's one thing, but, to, but then to take that and to make a mockery of what I've asked them to do. That, that reflects upon them and me, not just them and their sibling. They metaphorically spat in the face of my authority and my request. They showed contempt to me through the manner in which they aligned themselves with the letter of my law. 
superficial repentance, when I know what I'm doing and I'm seeking to gain something from the Lord that I am not actually aligning with, or I'm seeking to pacify the Lord in some way that's not aligned with the heart, uh, to do so, this superficial repentance shows a measure of contempt for the authority of God reflected in an implication that God will be pacified by my lip service. It pollutes God's name. It despises his character. And I I would warn each of us against such a thing. We need to be careful that we don't fall into superficial repentance because it's offensive to the Lord. It's offensive to his character. Finally, point number four, superficial repentance misses the point. We speak here of a principle several principles which carry with them real weight and value. We're learning in Tuesday night in Hebrews 11 of those who built their lives upon eternal promises, seeing with eyes of faith what they could not see with their physical eyes. Perhaps the most disappointing thing about the whole circumstance as we read Jeremiah 34 is the fact that the people completely missed the point of releasing these servants. Remember when we were back in Deuteronomy and we read how God commanded the people not only to release the servant on that seventh year, but also to release them with a generous livelihood with a start. When God commanded that, he did so on that singular basis that they should treat their brother with dignity and respect regardless of worth because God had done the very thing for them. God has done it for you. How proud does one have to be to not extend to a brother what God has extended to me? We've talked about this in any number of contexts. We talk about it particularly in Ephesians 4.32. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. How proud must I be to withhold forgiveness from a brother when God did not see fit to withhold forgiveness to me? Like, that's, that's a problem, right? <laughs> this idea here. God had done so much for them. He says, it is not too much for you to pass that along to your brother, to show them the dignity and respect and honor that I have showed to you. God gave them a land that they didn't have to work for. God gave them fields that were already planted. God gave them cities that already had walls. God says, I gave this all to you. Now don't tighten your fist when it comes to your brother. The point of you repenting, the point, see, superficial repentance misses the point. The point of you repenting is not to earn brownie points with your parents. It's not to earn the favor of your church. It's not to make your pastor think something of you. The point of you repenting is not to look good for your friend. The point of you repenting is that there's a God in heaven above And he dictates what is best for you. And if you have any measure of faith, then you know that your alignment with God and your alignment with his word is what's best for you. Superficial repentance misses the point because it undermines the very blessing that repentance brings. It undermines the point. It undermines the very best that God has for you. It undermines the eternal at the expense of the temporal. It undermines the spiritual at the expense of the physical. And like with the nation of Israel, not only is it ineffective, but it can be very detrimental. Their superficial repentance did not just undermine their best good. Their superficial repentance added to them greater judgment 
because they actually blasphemed God all the greater than if they had never even done it to begin with. Far better that they had never cut those animals in half, put them on either side, walked through that blood. Far better that they would have just said, no, we're keeping our servants than that they would have said they're going to release them and then not done it. Now, neither one's good, but they actually heaped upon themselves more judgment for their superficial repentance. We humans have a stunning capacity to work against our own best good. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the spiritual. Because the spiritual is the unseen. Sometimes the consequences only rest in the heavenlies. But this is also where it matters the most. And this is why superficial repentance is a fruitless endeavor because whatever external benefits a superficial repentance might present, they pale in comparison to the blessings in store for those who are actually willing to align their hearts. So how are you doing today? If you find yourself in a place of struggle with sin and when you fail, you go to the Lord, you make it right in lowliness of spirit with a contrite heart, then, then superficial repentance, that's not you. That's not for you. That's not, this context isn't for you. But if you've fallen into this trap of superficial repentance, whether it be with God or whether it be as it relates to the authorities God has put in your life or whatever the case may be, thinking that some external show is going to earn you something with God or that it's worth earning that with man in an external and superficial way, that the points which superficial repentance might earn you among men are worth what you have forfeit with God, you're fooling yourself. Is that you this evening? And if it is, would you repent of your superficial repentance? Would you, would you change? Would you understand that repentance is an important thing and that you can't produce by a superficial repentance what God has promised to those who actually have a contrite heart? Would you lay aside the superficiality would you lay aside the games? Don't play games with God. God doesn't do games. Doesn't work with him. Would you place yourself at the mercy of a God and do so under this understanding? One of the things that I've never understood about superficial repentance, particularly as it relates to my children and the way they interact with me, is that I, I want their best good. I'm not asking for them to align their hearts with their father because I want them to be miserable. I want the exact opposite for them. And the only thing standing between them and what is best for them is themselves. And it's hard to see that sometimes. But can you see that? Can you see that with God? Can you see that with this concept? Can you understand God's intentions toward you and understand that the things that God is asking of you are, he's not asking of you to, to make you miserable. He has reached out to us. He has given us a book. He has revealed himself to us. He has shown us of his character. He has initiated a relationship with us because he loves us, because he wants our best good. Can you trust him enough to say, God, you're right. I need to actually align with you. Do you trust him enough to actually align with him? He is the one who gave himself for you. He proved his love to, to, to the very death on the cross. He 
He longs not only for your best, but he longs for a thriving relationship with you and he can't have it with you under the context of superficial repentance. Would you align yourself and thus find yourself back into that place where he wants you, which is your best good of true repentance, of a contrite heart, of a broken spirit? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.